0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We should note that whistleblowers have been prominently in the news of late, Earlier this week, Bradley Manning was acquitted of aiding the enemy in a military court-martial but was convicted on multiple other counts. This is certain to have some impact on the possible eventual trial of Edward Snowden, the NSA whistleblower. And we expect in the weeks to come to take a look at people who decide to speak out and go to the media when they feel that the wrongdoing being done by people in positions of power needs to be unveiled. Today's program, we're going to speak to someone who, by any standard, would have to be considered a whistleblower of the first tier. His name is Peter Buxton. I've known Peter for years. I'm sure we've used at least one or two of his jokes in this program in the past, along with assorted bits of wisdom he has passed our way. Back in 1966, Peter Buxton was a public health service venereal disease investigator in San Francisco. He sent a letter to the National Director of the Division of Venereal Diseases to express his concern about the ethics and morality of the Tuskegee study, which by that point in time was being operated by the Center for Disease Control. The Tuskegee experiment was, well, is at this point a startlingly notorious example of an unethical, prospective medical study wherein people were followed through time with syphilis, even after the time in which penicillin was universally being used as a cure for the disease. And we're talking in this case about 1947. The study began in 1932. When Peter Buxton got involved, it was the mid-60s and the study was still going on. They meant to keep it going until everyone in the study was dead and had been autopsied. It's a hell of a story, and we look forward to traveling down to San Francisco to speak with Peter about it later in today's program. And I must say, I'm starting this program in a slightly downer mood, having just watched Christina Borchinson's documentary on TWA Flight 800. To my mind, this has to be the gold standard of cover-ups, and we're looking forward to speaking with Christina about it again, and with Tom Stalkup. We spoke with Mr. Stalkup on this program some years back, and we're looking forward to doing that again, in the next couple of weeks. This is a documentary that I think every American needs to see. But, lest I go off talking about that today, let's instead start the program as we like to do, with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 1st of August. It was on August 1st in 1498 that Christopher Columbus set foot on the American mainland for the first time. That was in present-day Venezuela. Venezuela. Thinking that the Paria Peninsula was an island, he christened it Isla Santa and claimed it for his patron country, Spain. On August 1st in 1740, "Rule Britannica was sung for the first time as part of composer Thomas Arne's Mask Alfred. That was at a party for the third birthday of the Prince of Wales' daughter, Augusta. And oh yes, you know this one. Speaking of the British, on August 1st in 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte's conquest of the Middle East was thwarted when the British fleet under Lord Nelson defeated the French fleet at the Battle of the Nile. A little bit closer to home, on August 1st in 1873, the English inventor Andrew Smith Halliday successfully tested the first cable car he designed for the city of San Francisco. The cable car was a rather smashing success, and they're still in operation. On August 1st in 1943, a Japanese destroyer rammed an American PT boat, in fact number 109, slicing it in two. Two crewmen were killed, but 11 survived, including Lieutenant John F. Kennedy, who would later become President of the United States. And we're proud to be able to say we were able to interview someone that took part in the rescue of Lieutenant Kennedy in the wake of the sinking of PT-109, and we would refer you to our archives for a great interview with Sacramento native Ted Robinson. On this date in 1956, the Salk polio vaccine became available to the American public. As a result, the incidence of polio in the United States began to decline radically. In fact, if public health officials around the world can get their act together, polio might be the second disease in history to be eliminated. So far, the only thing that medical science has been able to truly eliminate has been smallpox. But we do have a shot at polio. And lastly, though slightly out of sequence, it was on August 1st in 1939 that bandleader Glenn Miller recorded In the Mood, which becomes one of the most famous songs performed by an American artist. And boy, it's a good one. <laughs> ¶¶ August 1st, 1914, World War I began. And if we're going to talk about that, we probably need the whole show. So I'm just going to say, the less said today, the better. Our quote today comes from Aldous Huxley, who once said, The surest way to work up a crusade in favor of some good cause is to promise people they will have a chance to maltreat somebody. Our quote today comes from David Letterman, who said some days back, Hi, I'm David Letterman, or as the staff likes to call me, The Royal Baby. A joke today comes from Conan O'Brien, who said sometime back, It has come out that when Muammar Gaddafi's Libyan compound was raided back in 2011, someone stole his gold toilet brush. Police described the suspect as pretty much anyone with a gold toilet brush. All right, we have three stats of the day. The first one being that the rapid shrinkage of the polar ice cap has led to a boom in Arctic shipping. So far this year, 204 ships have sailed between Asia and Europe via the Arctic, a route once only navigable by fortified ice-breaking ships. That's up from 46 such voyages last year and just four in 2010, according to the Financial Times. Our second stat of the day is five billion extra dollars, which is what uh, the New York Times is saying we might have to blame Goldman Sachs for over the past three years. American consumers have apparently paid that amount extra as a result of the bank's manipulation of aluminum commodities. A New York Times investigation found that A firm subsidiary of Goldman has added millions to their coffers by slowing down aluminum deliveries, driving up rent costs at Goldman-owned aluminum warehouses, and inflating the metals price for manufacturers and eventually consumers. And no, we can't explain why it is that no one from Goldman Sachs has been cuffed and taken to jail yet. Except, of course, to perhaps note that the U.S. government also appears to be a subsidiary of Goldman Sachs. And our third stat, also from the business pages, notes that Silicon Valley investors are rapidly losing interest in social media. In fact, social media firms received only 2% of the venture capital spent on internet-based companies last quarter. That's down from a high of 21% in the third quarter of 2011. It's noted that big data and cloud computing businesses now appear to be the hot plays. That's according to businessweek.com. Yeah, Big data, that thing that <laughs> Edward Snowden is in Moscow for having reported the NSA being involved in. Yeah, that's a, that's a hot commodity to invest in, apparently. And our cartoon of the day, which we do on occasion, I would say. I guess we're going to have to ask James Israel who this cartoonist is, but it was in the week showing Wayne LaPierre up on a dais with a big NRA logo behind him. The caption said, A press conference we'd pay to see. And the voice bubble coming out of Mr. LaPierre is We need to start arming law abiding black males so that a tragedy like this never happens again. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for red tape after the Department of Agriculture demanded that magicians who use rabbits in their act submit plans on how they'd save the animals in a national disaster. Magician Gary Marr said he would carry a note reading, Take rabbit with you when you leave. That's my plan. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for making the boyfriend happy after a Russian woman was found naked outside her apartment with her head stuck in a staircase handrail. She told police she'd been trying to spice things up with her boyfriend. The article notes that the ungrateful cad fled the scene. And apparently it was an ugly week last week for Tom Cruise, who's apparently on the hunt for a new young girlfriend. Reportedly, the 51-year-old actor has been feeling very lonely since his high-profile divorce from Katie Holmes last year and is seeking a 20-something looker who, quote, will make you more relevant with younger audiences, unquote. Cruise, if you can believe this, has recruited his 18-year-old son Connor, a club DJ, to help him meet model types in trendy night spots. Well, how'd you like to be a fly in the wall for that conversation? Hey, hey, hey Connor, I wonder if you could help the old man out here a bit. Reportedly, Cruz has failed to find any takers. Noted a source, Tom's stock as a great catch has plummeted. Women see him as controlling and with his Scientology connection just downright creepy. And here's one item we can't resist from the Only in America file. Apparently, a Florida daycare teacher was fired for leaving her classroom to put out a fire. Michelle (laughs) Hammock apparently traced a burning smell to an oven fire in the kitchen. She then led her students outside and extinguished the fire. Daycare owner Olga Rozhav then fired her. I fired her because she left the room, Rozhav explained. Mr. McMillan, I think we need some special music for this next item. Yes, apparently Michelle Cottle at the Daily Beast says that Darth Vader has a daughter, and she's running for the Senate. I am your father. Yes, Liz Cheney, the offspring of (laughs) bloodthirsty overlord and former Vice President Dick Cheney, Announced last week she will mount a primary challenge to fellow Republican Michael Enzi of Wyoming in next year's primary. Enzi is, in fact, one of the most conservative members of the Senate. He's anti-abortion, he's pro-gun, and he's anti-gay marriage. But that still puts him to the left of Liz, a woman who remains 100% convinced that her dad was 100% right 100% of the time. Invading Iraq? Great idea. Torture? A no-brainer. Is Obama a terrorist-appeasing wimp who's betrayed his own country? Righto. Republican uh, marching-in-step stooges are lining up behind Liz Cheney. But uh, former Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson is calling the whole thing a disaster. It is interesting to contemplate how it is that parties, certain groups of individuals basically get to pick the people that run for office, and then of the people that they pick, well, the public is then (laughs) offered Hobson's choice to put in the various offices. Apparently local Republicans are deciding that Doug Ose perhaps should not be running for the 7th Congressional District because he's just not conservative enough. And we tried to get Mr. Ose on this program some years back, and when I remember very well when I put my card in his hand, he looked down at it as if I'd perhaps placed a small dog turd there. But oddly enough, I'm going to bag on uh, people that have been rude to us in the past. Believe it or not, the guy that takes the cake, hands down, is in fact not a conservative. It's film documentarian Michael Moore, who left us hanging one afternoon for hours as one of his staff members kept postponing the, the chance to talk with him over and over, and then finally just packed up left the scene without so much as a notification on their part they were going to do so. So when we read that Mr. Moore has now filed for divorce from his wife of two decades and seeking a court order preventing either of them from touching his estimated $50 million fortune, we just sort of figure that, well, maybe if he wasn't such a jerk, his wife wouldn't be divorcing him. Of course, that opinion, like all those right on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California, most of whom we suspect rather like Michael Moore. And to be honest, we do admire a great deal of his work. We just think that on a personal level, he's kind of a jackass. And speaking of jackasses, let's back our way into the whole whistleblower thing. And how that relates to the current administration, which has decided to be even tougher than Bush Cheney when it comes to dealing with leakers. Tom Tomorrow hit the nail on the head as he often does a couple weeks back with one of his cartoon series. Noting how various malcontents thought the public should know about things their government was doing. Show a talking head on television saying, Coming up next, confidential sources reveal fraud and abuse. Noting in the next panel, Obviously the government had no choice but to prosecute such malcontents. <laughs> Show holder going, Under a 96-year-old statute never intended for this purpose, I hereby charge you with espionage. Next panel has, Holder holding up a list of phone records with the caption, Spy upon journalists to whom they spoke. Voice Bubble has Holder saying, It's a matter of national security. If you don't like it, blame Congress for not passing a law to stop us. Which sadly may be about right. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. We've got a lot more to say about this topic of whistleblowing. Peter Buxton, the man who revealed to the world the story of the infamous Tuskegee Experiment.